So war is the health of the state. That's the famous saying by Randolph Bourne. It was an opponent of U.S. entry into World War One. The government will gain power through crises, war and similar things. Uh, Robert Higgs's book, uh, Crisis and Leviathan, documents this, and he shows how in these crises, the government expands, and then afterwards, it may shed some of the powers that came in under the emergency, or the at least the alleged emergency, right. but never all of them. So the government still ends up bigger afterwards, even when the crisis seems over. The government ends up more powerful than it was before. He calls it a ratchet effect, right? It, it ratchets it up, but it, it doesn't ever come fully back to the pre-crisis period. So if you get a series of crises, the government is growing over that period of time. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, it's Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I am here with my ray of truth, the beautiful Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. Hey, hey. How's everyone doing? Bam! Bam! I'm telling you yeah. what, Raylene, a couple days ago, wasn't feeling too good. I was exhausted. We just uh, did the Brent D. Ritter episode. Mm-hmm. And man, I was just dead. It's dead to the world. Yeah, I'm glad that you are feeling like yourself again. I'm feeling good. Goodly. Feeling well. However you want to say it. Bigly goodly. Yes. Yes, I do feel good. I'm happy. Good day. Beautiful day outside. Feeling good. Feeling the flow. Fantastic. So, bad news, though, is my toilet started running. Like, just constantly started running. And it wouldn't stop. Oh, my gosh. So, you got your exercise for the day then, huh? I did. I was chasing it around the house. Yeah. Yeah, I was. (laughs) And so, I like, I'm a handyman. So, I had to take out the guts of this thing. And then, like, kind of put it back together. And I felt pretty proud. Because not many people can do that. And I felt pretty good. I read the instructions, too. I followed it step by step until I figured it out. So, I feel pretty confident in my uh, plumbing abilities now so wow that's amazing good yeah. job i love it when people can accomplish something like that it's not enough people that know how to fix their own things anymore that's true that's true and yeah. so how about you really quick because i we have a guest here and he's awesome and we don't want to keep him waiting but how are you yeah i'm so good i've been um somebody accused me today though of digital blackface on uh, twitter what does that mean because well blackface is when white people dress up yes um yes but yeah digital blackface i don't know because i posted a picture of a lady from tv that's black doing an eye roll and apparently i'm not as a white person allowed to do that it, that kind of shocked me a little bit i thought that was interesting this is the world we live in now so yep. oh, yeah oh yeah so did you fight the power did you fight them back said no, I'm not even going to respond to somebody like that. Okay. That's, that's how I feel. But let's do this. All right. Let's bring out our guest. Sheldon Richman is the former editor of the Freeman Magazine and a contributor to the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics. He is the author of Separating School and State, How to Liberate America's Families, and thousands of articles. Mr. Richman is also a research fellow at the Independent Institute and former vice president at the Future of Freedom Foundation. Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Sheldon Richmond. Well, a break in a rock's in a hot sun. I bought the law. 
Hey, Sheldon. Hello. Sheldon, nice welcome. to be with you. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Very cool. Very cool. So, I've been watching your videos, and uh, one of our producer went out and sought you, Ben, and uh, he's like, dude, you got to get this guy on. He is just great, and he's friends with Scott Horton, and I guess he went through Scott Horton to get to you. And I got to say, thank you very much for taking the time for coming out here on the show. And you have some really interesting things to say. And I really liked what you had to say regarding the Mises Institute or Mises himself, not the Institute, but himself and human action. And I wanted to know, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, to our listeners, what are some reasons why people should read Human Action? Well, it's a, it's a daunting book. It's a very long book. It's not a book that uh, someone mm-hmm. would start out on, uh, depending on the person. But uh, there, there are shorter things by Mises uh, that, that it seems one would begin with. I mean, that's a it's a huge treatise. It's a, what about thousand thousand pages? Oh yeah, and. You know, it's not that it's so, you know, technical that a, a person who has no degree in economics couldn't read, but I think you might want to you know, prepare yourself with uh, some shorter things. But it's a, it's such an important book because it lays out what, to me, uh, I believe is the, uh, is the right method to go about uh, doing economics or describing how markets and basically social processes work, starting with the, uh, you know, the acting individual. I mean, that's where Mises begins. That's why he called it human action. Right. Although he was, uh, his first thought was to call it social cooperation, which I think gives quite a good insight into the, what the book is about. The book is about social cooperation. But of course, social cooperation uh, happens when uh, two or more individuals, uh, you know, cooperate, to use the, use the, the word in the definition, exactly. which you're not supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. But the, when, they, when they are, you know, undertaking some sort of joint activity, whether it be a simple trade or something much more complex. I mean, so, and, and the, of course, Mises' larger point is that, we live much better, more comfortable lives, more goods and services. We just live much better when we live in a society that has, uh, you know, that is characterized by free cooperation, free consensual cooperation. So you get the division of labor, you get specialization, you get trade. And as a society grows and gets richer through that process, the division of labor becomes even more elaborate. And so, uh, you know, people are able to specialize in things that at an earlier stage of that society would have been out of the question. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, think of a primitive society. It's impossible for someone to, you know, be a full-time artist or writer. Yes. Uh, in a primitive society, everybody's needed to be in the fields or be a hunter or a gatherer. Uh, they, they can't afford it. But as the society gets richer because of, of uh, people saving and investing and, uh, and then also through uh, technological innovation, all of which come about from you know, people being free to, to think and to pioneer new things. As that society becomes richer, you're able to then specialize in ever more sort of narrow things. So today we have firms that are, you know, operate in niche markets that are that a relative few people are interested in. I mean, we all have examples, you know, can think of examples of this where a company is making something that's not of broad mass interest. Right, right. We can only afford that sort of thing, which means we can all develop our particular interests uh, because there's a certain amount of wealth that's been created. And so Mises explains all this and mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in great detail and goes into all aspects of this, what the entrepreneur does, what that, you know, the role of that person is. And so it's certainly worth uh, reading him. Now, when you when I say start with some other things, he had shorter books, Planning for Freedom and Planned Chaos. I mean, if you go to Amazon and just put his name in there, you'll you'll find some things. If you go to the uh, the Freeman site at the Foundation for Economic Education, he published lots of articles over the years because he was very close to to uh, the organization, which is known as Fee. F-F-E-E. Uh, and so you'll find lots of individual articles by him that, uh, you know, deal with particular examples, uh, 
particular issues, trade, various economic concepts like comparative advantage and wow. subjective value right. and things like that. So you don't need to start with human action. If, if someone is really uh, 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 you know, bold and courageous and wants to dive right in, sure, take a look at it. You can actually find it online. Uh, I think possibly at the Mises Institute, there's readable online uh, or at the, sorry, at the uh, uh, Liberty Fund's uh, online library of liberty, you can find uh, uh, human action. So you don't need to invest the money right away. You can read it online and see see if it's uh, your cup of tea. But he's definitely worth reading, even if you never get the human action, because that was his magnum opus. It was. And it's like the thing was, I started with Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. And from mm-hmm. there, I moved to Man, Economy, and State by Murray Rothbard. And I think right. Rothbard, I think, actually does a better job of kind of, because Mises, it seems awkward the way it's written. Like the first. That's a harder Rothbard book, too, to be honest. That's one of his harder books. So it's kind of funny. You did jump right in, Johnny. I did. Yeah, that's right. Well, Economics One Lesson, certainly people of my age, uh, was the starter for just about everybody who wasn't uh, an economics major, let's say. Right. Uh, that would be the book people rec- recommend. You know, say, "Oh, I'm interested in economics. What should I read?" And if you were speaking to a free market person or a libertarian, uh, uh, almost without exception, they would uh, recommend economics in one lesson. Absolutely. Uh, Rothbard has lots of shorter books that are also collections of articles. Uh, you're right, though. Man, Economy, and State is his magnum opus, and uh, in a way, it's uh, his sort of updating of human action. Uh, and you're right. Uh, it's also more readable. You know, Mises was a native German speaker. He's an Austrian, born in Austria. And so uh, English was his uh, second language. And uh, also he um, he was from Europe and from a different time. I mean, he was born in what, like 1880 or 1888, somewhere yes. around there. Yep. Uh, and so he's got that old world. There's an old world uh, flavor to his his uh, even his English. And uh, and so right, the sentences are maybe a little bit longer than we're than we're used to these days. Uh, you know, writing has become much more informal. Yes. In our culture, writing used to be more formal than speaking. But today, the, for for many many people, including some very good writers, uh, there's really no difference in the level of formality between the written word and the spoken word. So Rothbard uh, was a younger guy because he died in 1995. So he's uh, kind of the generation before me. But um, he was, of course, English speaking by first language. Right. Born in New York, New York, and and he was just you know a different a different generation from Mises. So it, it it'll seem a bit more hip. I mean, it's exactly. You no, know, it's 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 not the you know easiest reading. It may not be beach reading for a lot of people, and it also <laughs> is about a thousand words. It's one it of is. these thick books that are mm-hmm. you know about the size of Atlas Shrugged, like Human Action is. But and and one of the, with these books, you can also dive into like different parts. You don't have to read from page one to the end. Yes. You can look up topics. You can do this with Mises too. You can look up particular topics using the index or the table of contents and and read a particular section. Right. You won't get all the foundation if you do it that way. But uh, I'm glad you brought up Man, Economy, and State. Because that, that is, uh, as a starter, if it's between those two books, I would say Rothbard is the better starter book. But both of those are pretty, uh, yeah, pretty hefty as a starter book for anybody. Oh, yeah. Unless you've uh, studied a lot of economics already. No, I have not. And that was like my, that was my gig. You know, like I want to start learning about this and I kept hearing about it. I'm like, well, it's a, it's a good opportunity. I'm a strong libertarian. So I figured, Hey, that would be a great place for me to start. And I really did, you know, it was, it was guys like Tom Woods who got me in, into the idea of learning mm-hmm. Rothbard. And yeah. uh, I think it was kind of important that I did find out about economic thought or understand economics 
And uh, no, I, Rothbard wrote a lot about Mises. Rothbard uh, studied with Mises. He attended Mises uh, New York University uh, uh, seminar. He didn't get his PhD at NYU, so uh, but he attended a famous uh, seminar that that Mises did in, in the evenings at uh, NYU, and uh, Rothbard was one of those regulars. And so he wrote quite a bit to present Mises to people. So you'll find that you can find online, uh, it's more basically a pamphlet called The Essential on Mises, I think it's called, which is, you know, very brief, but very readable. And uh, it's it'll give you, a re- in broad terms, a really good introduction to what Mises did, what he accomplished. Uh, and then you'll find lots of other things like the, that are Misesian by, by Rothbard. What has government done to our money? A whole bunch of shorter books or even pamphlets. Right on. Which you can find if you just search on, uh, yeah, search for Rothbard's uh, name in Google or, you know, you'll, 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 people have no trouble finding things. So I was wondering, why are all these young people that, that supposedly come out of college with economics degrees, why are they people who can't do math and, and are socialists or, or, or bordering on communism, honestly? What's going on with economic degrees? And I understand there's different schools of thought, but are they even teaching Austrian ek? Is that something that you're even seeing in colleges? What What is the problem here? Well, I don't know how many of the people you say are coming out of the socialists have economic degrees. I thought they might have had more like uh, sociology degrees or psychology degrees yep. or uh, English English degrees. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, so I don't so know too. how many actually have economic degrees. Probably not that many. I think the, most of the people taking economics either either are majoring in economics and they're probably not coming out of socialists or they're business majors who have to take some economics. Ah, uh, that's a lot of people say that. Yeah. <laughs> they're telling me that they went to school for economics, and I'm. Uh. Austrian well, economics is, as I understand it, I, I'm not in you know the university world, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is sort of secondhand, and I uh, I hope my information isn't uh, too dated. But I think in, in most places it would be hard to, to even get a course in Austrian economics, and uh, and or to have uh, an Austrian assigned yeah. in a regular economic course. Maybe some Hayek he did win the Nobel Prize in '74. So F.A. Hayek might might get covered, uh, but I don't think you're going to learn about Mises. Now, there are schools where there is some concentration in that. So the the obvious ones are uh, George Mason University and uh, and uh, New York University, because there have been Austrians there for many years. Uh, Israel Kirzner yep. taught there. He's retired, but there are other people who are in, you know, more or less in that tradition. And so then there's some other places. I mean, offhand, I can't think of others that, but you can like San Jose State, you can find people certainly friendly to Austrians. Uh, And then more generally, of course, they're free. There are departments that that have a strong free market people, even if they're not exactly Austrian, because you a person, uh, you know, there are economists who are very free market and may, mm-hmm. may agree with an Austrian on every policy issue, but has a different approach as far as the method, you know, how they do economics. Right. Like the Chicago School. Yeah, the Chicago School, which is a positive or sort of Popperian, Karl Popper uh, school, which, uh, you know, is very empirical, could be a lot of math- mathematics. What Mises did, and the method he uses, which which he called praxeological, prax- right. praxeology, begins not so much looking at the world at first, but building up from the from the, what he calls the action axiom. Right. Namely, yes. human beings act. They engage in purposeful activity. They, they have an end and then they look for means that they believe will, you know, best give them the best chance of, a, of achieving the end. Right. And they base everything on a priori truths. A priori so, like, science. Oh, you know, the, 
And so Mises, and there are Austrians who would you know, have some argument about this and may not go the whole way with Mises, but Mises argued that you can build up the entirety of economic theory beginning with this axiom, which is self-evidently true. I mean, there's no way someone can challenge you and say, no, I don't, you're not right. Human beings don't act. Because by saying that, that person is acting, right? That person uh-huh. wants to convey some meaning to you, right? His disagreement with what you just said. So he's got an end. I want to, t- I want, that person wants to tell you that's his end, right? That person wants to tell you right. you're wrong. And so you can't deny action without performing an action. Even if it's just speaking, that's an action. I'm with you. Yeah. And there you go into things like, uh, well, when you act, when you have alternatives in front of you and you choose the thing that you want to uh, go for, you choose A over B, you, you, we, we can say for certain that you regarded A as more valuable than B. Right. You prefer A to B because otherwise you're going for B. It's a logical thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a psychological thing. And it's not just something we observe. It has to be true. That's what it means. And so then then from there, you know, I'm really oversimplifying, but then you get into things like trade with two people where one has an apple, right? And one has a banana. So we'll keep the A and B going. It'll make it easier. Uh, and they decide <laughs> to change those things. Right. We can know for sure, assuming it's voluntary, right? Nobody's got a gun to anybody's head and the government's not it, ruling all those things out. If A and uh, agree, A and B agreed to, to trade the apple for the banana, we know for sure that A wants the banana more than he wanted the apple, and B wanted the apple more than he wanted the banana, or else they would not have traded. Right. So from there, you can build up a whole lot of theory, and you're not out looking at people trading. You're not, you know, you don't have to then go out and say, "I wonder if this is true." Let's go watch people trade. That's, I mean, you you can get other information by watching people trade, like exactly what are they trading or what the price is. That that stuff you have to go out and see. That's that's exactly exactly. But you don't go out. You don't go out to a marketplace or like a supermarket and say, "Oh, good, I, I I'm I'm going to observe these people. I'm going to stand here for a while and see whether they really value what they're putting into their cart more than the money." That they're going to give to the clerk. The subjective value. I mean, for, it, that would be ridiculous. Exactly. No, I'm with you. You're not going to see the value. You just know from the fact that they're doing it that that's what that means. It has to mean that. It can't mean something else. They wouldn't be going in and trading what they regard as a higher value for a lower value. Sheldon, having a long history within the libertarian movement and the liberty movement, who are some of your influences and how did you become a libertarian? Well, yeah, I got a lot of influences. I can uh, happen. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> so do all I. Names you recognize, I don't think there are anybody, there's going to be anybody too obscure, maybe one or two. Well, I became, I discovered libertarianism I mean, before I knew the word. I guess I was already a libertarian. That was kind of typical in, in back in my day when that word wasn't quite as widely used as it is today. Right, right. Uh, Actually, hear from the news. You wouldn't have heard it on the news in the in the, you know 1964, let's say. So in 1964, there was a presidential race between uh, Lyndon Johnson, who became president after uh, John Kennedy was assassinated in '63. So he's running. Uh, he's running for his own term in '64. Because Kennedy's term would have been up, uh, that, uh, you know, in, at the end of '64, and uh, Barry Goldwater, who was a Republican. Now, so yep. I had an older brother who was getting interested in politics. I wasn't really thinking much about politics then, but but I was hearing things from him, which sort of intrigued me. Just sort of grabbed my attention. 
And I used to like stories about the American Revolution. And so the idea of individual liberty was already appealing just from, you know, seeing, seeing shows on TV or, or reading, uh, reading books. Uh, so I was already sort of primed for it. Uh, so what I was hearing about Goldwater, I know a lot, a lot more about, you know, what Goldwater was uh, believed back then than I knew then. And because uh, I learned a lot more. So I, if Goldwater were running today and I knew, you know, and I know what I do know now, I wouldn't be quite as enthusiastic. But what was coming across at the time was he was a guy for limited government. Mm-hmm. And he he just didn't like intrusive government at the uh, the national level, and I assume at the state level too. But of course, his focus was the national level. He was in the Senate, and he was running for president. What I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to was the fact that he was uh, uh, on foreign policy, you know, a real hawk. And so uh, I don't know what you know. I, I hadn't yet thought about foreign policy in those days in 64. But anyway, that began to spark my interest in political thought and economics. I like the idea of, oh, well, I think people should be free to, you know, engage in peaceful activities. That means trade and and other things. So I had uh, people I knew in high school started saying, well, if you like that, you know, getting back to Hazlitt now, they said, you ought to read Economics in One Lesson. So that's why, you know, first heard that title just from friends. Right. I had a couple of friends who, who already had been reading some stuff in this area. And they mentioned the Foundation for Economic Education. You know, they said, uh, oh, send your name in, get on the mailing list, and you'll get the, the Freeman every month. And they don't charge for it. And, and so that was a great way to start reading these articles, which were, uh, you know, fairly introductory fee, fee uh, certainly in those days was more uh, sort of outreach and, and uh, introducing economic ideas and other libertarian ideas to people so new readers could uh, find that very accessible and learn without already having uh, read a lot. And so I started from there, and then and then somebody mentions Ayn Rand, which is, again, for my generation, that was very typical. That's why there's this book, it usually begins with Ayn Rand, which you can find. It's written, written back in those days and still still available, and it's a funny book. It's kind of a satirical book, but it had a nub of truth. For my generation, at least, an awful lot of people started by reading the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Not not so much as uh, nonfiction, although they might have gotten into the nonfiction too. But the but the novels, because you know, fiction can have a, a very powerful uh, effect on people. Exactly. It, it 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 conveys empathy. You can actually experience empathy when you care about characters fictionally. You're seeing characters in action, unlike a book, just a theoretical uh, essay. Mm-hmm. And 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 Rand is able to do that. Uh, that was very appealing. I don't consider myself a Randian or objectivist. I mean, I, I think there's some value there. I think uh, some things about it, especially when she started writing nonfiction uh, philosophy, there are some problems with. But I'm certainly gen- I'm in that generally broad, you know, that broad tradition of individual liberty. Uh, so the idea that reason is very is important. You know, this Aristotle idea that Rand uh, Rand drew from that that reason and freedom and consent and contract and voluntary society is is the right way to go. It wasn't long before I heard Rothbard's name, so I started looking at the, the stuff we talked about, probably the shorter things first. I mean, I got I got I did get a copy of Man, Economy, and State pretty early and, and dipped into it, but yeah, I started with his uh, more accessible, shorter things. And then Mises, again, the, the, the shorter, uh, more introductory kind of things from, uh, from Mises, more Hazlitt. I mean, yeah, it's kind of going to be mostly names you've heard of. A few people, maybe not so well-known, Carl Hess, 
Yep. Pearl Hess was a speechwriter for Goldwater, who, uh, who after that, uh, after a little while, became really a, a, a solid libertarian. And uh, and this is when I first started hearing, well, also from Rothbard, about anarchism. Because at first it was, uh, you know, limited government seemed to be the uh, the style of libertarianism that I was right. practicing. And then I, I was uh, sort of encountering. And then suddenly here, oh, wait a second. You've got some people here who take an uh, additional step. That everything can be left to the marketplace and, and um, handled better but and also without any coercion. It blew my mind too. It yeah. blew my mind. First you say, well, that sounds a little nutty. I mean, your first reaction is, uh, yeah, well, maybe that's going too far. But you read, you think, you talk. I, I went to a lot of conferences in those days. Uh, it would be really great because they'd have people there. Uh, and, you know, you begin to think about it. And, uh, you know, it's only because it's so unfamiliar. No one else is ever talking about it, you know, when you're mm-hmm. growing up. So, yes. Here. This is cool. Uh, I was... It's by Roy Childs is a name maybe a lot of people don't, younger people don't know today, but uh, Roy Childs was a very prolific author. He was sort of self-taught. I think, you know, school dropout. Uh, when uh, laissez-faire uh, books uh, uh, used to exist, well, it, it, it actually still does. Is, is ex- it still does. It exists in some form. Yeah. It's not the, it's the older, uh, it, it changed hands uh, okay. a few times. Oh, in those earlier days, first it was just a store in uh, Soho in New York, uh, downtown New York, uh, Manhattan. But And then it became mail order, too. And then eventually, when Andrea Rich uh, took it over, you know, they had a really good catalog with very good reviews to tell you about books. And Roy Childs was was the editorial director. He was a prolific reader and writer, and uh, he was a great book reviewer. And uh, he and Andrea Rich, who, who died just a couple of months ago, unfortunately, they brought an awful lot of books uh, to the awareness of libertarians. I mean, the two of them together are really responsible for educating, oh, I don't know, a generation or two of, uh, of libertarians uh, because wow. they found sort of books. And, and they didn't have to all be strictly libertarian books, but books that would be useful and interesting libertarians. And leaning that, would and leaning that way. Yes, absolutely. Right. In that direction. But, you know, it wasn't like it was an orthodoxy where you had to take one line. Yeah, the two of them together really uh, are responsible for a huge amount of education, saving libertarians an awful lot of trouble as far as discovering books. Uh, so it was, just, it was just a fantastic service. So Roy was important. Uh, and then plenty of other people, Ralph Rako, who uh, has written some books on a, a lot on hi- historian, foreign policy, Leonard Ligio, who I worked with at the Institute for Humane Studies, who was a uh, didn't write quite as much, but did some writing, uh, and, a, and a great historian that I just learned so much from. He used to lecture at lots of different conferences, uh, Cato Institute conferences, and others. Very cool. And and those conferences also are really uh, from various organizations, FEE and others, uh, really did help to uh, educate a lot of a lot of libertarians, and also getting them in one place where they could meet each other and talk and. And then talk, mix with the lecturers, those things. And then they still go on today, of course, the, uh, from the different groups. Those have always been very important. They still are. Keeping people interested and really firing them up and presenting to them, you know, systematically the history, the economics, the sociology, all the, the various disciplines. Uh, and it makes, you know, tends to make then people solid. They're not just activists. They actually know Exactly. Something. Exactly. That's important. Sheldon, really quick. We have about two minutes left, but Raylene, go ahead. Cause we have, we want to jam all these questions in, man. This is good stuff, but we just got so much. 
to ask I'll, you. I'll keep it. I'll keep this one short. I'll do a short one. Finish the sentence, please. Taxation is. <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought you'd give me a tough one. That's that's a give me. That's, that's such a softball. I had a follow up. What are your thoughts on Trump tariffs? How do you feel he's doing with the economy right now? We have a lot of people that said they were libertarians that went uh, total Trumpers thinking he was going to be the next libertarian or the libertarian president. Where are you at with that? I, I, I don't understand that position at all. Me either. Ta- look, tariffs are horrendous. You know, he claims to be, you know, the for the working man and America first. Trade interference cannot benefit, quote, America. It can, quote, some, in the short run, some segments of American business and, and workers, a small segment, at the expense of everyone else. There's no right. way you can interfere with trade and say, this is benefiting all Americans. It's nonsense. What he's doing is raising prices to consumers. And who's that hurt most of all? Low-income consumers, lower-income consumers. Rich people can absorb it. Upper-middle-class people may, you know, can maybe absorb the increases that are coming from right. these tariffs. The whole point of tariffs is to raise prices. That's right. Let's not... You know, that's the point of it. That's not just even a, oh, that's a side effect. No, it's not a side effect. It's the objective. It's domestic, uh, you know, industries or business people or the, mm-hmm. or workers saying uh, foreigners are have, uh, you know, are selling, competing with us and selling their goods uh, lower than we can sell, sell them. So we want you to add a tax so their prices will be higher and then we can keep our prices up. That does not do Americans any favors, uh, except for the very small minority that benefits. And that'll only be in the short run anyway, because it, it, it no way can it be long, long-term good for anyone. So it's terrible. Uh, there's been some deregulation, mm-hmm. technical, you know, some of it, I guess, would make more of a difference. You know, there's been some tax cutting. However, there's been no spending cutting. There have been major increases in spending, military and otherwise. Right. And uh, that just means more borrowing, more debt. So even if... Uh, so that, so that means in the future, younger people have more debt to bear. So here he is imposing basically, uh, in effect, higher taxes and more uh, you know, debt burden on people who can't vote today. So how's, isn't that nice? It's like taxation without representation. Yep, there it is, man. Anyways, though, this is Blast Off, and I'm here with my ray of truth, the beautiful Miss Riley Lightheart. Thank you. Anyways, so I'm Johnny Rocket. We're talking to Sheldon Richmond, and we're not done with you yet, sir. We have Rocket Fire coming up. Anyways, so this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas. We'll be right back. Rock and roll. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. This is a story that long waited to be told. It began in the minds of men many, many years ago. Five, four, three, two, one. 
to Sheldon Richmond. Thank you so much, sir. I mean, wow, you got some cool stories to talk about, man. I was just like, whoa. I had a whole bunch of questions, but like, man, you just expanded and expanded and expanded. I was just like, hell yeah, that's some good stuff, man. And I'm with you. And I think, you know, I think economics is really one of the greatest. I mean, you it, it, it's eye-opening. You understand how everything kind of works once you understand economics. It's like, I wouldn't say it's a religion, but it's definitely eye-opening experience. Of how you view things, yeah, I think it, I think it, it's certainly not a, re, a religion. I mean, it shouldn't be. Maybe some people uh, treat it like a religion. I think and, so. You know, we got to be careful. I mean, don't ask for more precision than you can get from it. We are talking about human beings, mm-hmm. and uh, which means, uh, as far as making predictions, certainly, particularly, you know, very specific predictions, uh, you don't look for economics, uh, you know, for that exactly because. Uh, there's too much that's indeterminate because people are uh, unpredictable and, and uh, you know, you don't know how they're going to act. Uh, you may think if the price of something goes up, uh, then people might buy less. And generally, that's what happens, certainly in a with with large being, numbers of people. Yeah, with all things being equal. But, but it's possible that, you know, the, some people in some particular circumstances will buy more of something if the price goes up. For example, if they think the price is going to go up even higher next week, they may buy up, you know, buy up yes. stock of the, whatever it is today. Thinking, uh, oh, I'll buy at the uh, the the lower higher price rather than the higher higher price next week. So you are talking about people, and people, right. you know, people are not robots. 
Yes, and it's always spontaneous. There's a lot of spontaneous orders going on. That's right. Value is subjective. That's right. And people don't people don't know always know what they're going to do when they're faced with a particular alternative. They you know, you could give them a questionnaire and they'd say, "Yeah, I do, you know, if you would you choose between A and B in these circumstances?" and they might they might give you an answer. But if they're in those circumstances, it doesn't mean they'll do that. Not that they lied, but they're now seeing it fresh and they're actually in the situation. Yeah, so uh, very yeah, you've got to be skeptical about predictions in economics. Besides, aside from very broad predictions, but quantitative predictions, uh, very particular predictions, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't take any of those very seriously. Like, you know, so, uh, you don't ask an economist, is the stock market going to go up? Uh, you know, what's the stock market going to do next year? Or how much is it going to go up? I mean, uh, no, no economist will answer a question like that. Exactly. No good economist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, Sheldon, what we do here on the second segment, it's called Rocket Fire. What we do on Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically or philosophically and or economically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that would be badass. Sheldon, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? I'll try. I'm not ready for this. I didn't study. All right, here we go. Question one. Does the rich need government handouts for their survival? Uh, some do. Uh, I think the arms industry does because I don't think there's a lot of a lot of consumers out there who are looking to buy uh, tanks and you know F-35s and uh, you know missiles and and drones and stuff like that. So uh, uh, some do, uh, and and others even outside of the military area apparently do because they uh, don't think they'll sell enough at the prop the prices they want to sell. So they uh, they want the help from government. It's, uh, historically, this has always been the case, right? Uh, business, yes. particular business people lobbying for favors in the state. Right on. Question two: Is fascism in America as bad as the left says it is? And if so, is it a new thing or is it bigger than Trump? Well, we, I, we're not. We're certainly not there yet, and I think we're still a good distance from that. I mean, Trump makes noises that uh, make me nervous. Right, and I would think make people nervous, but it's not, I don't think it's all. I also don't think it's brand new with Trump. Right, the government has been making sort of in, incursions into our, uh, you know, private lives for a very long time. But uh, look, there's still a good deal of of rule of law and you know protection of defendants. I mean, we don't have people being taken away in the middle of the night, never heard from again, or you know, putting mm -hmm. in, into uh, uh, held uh, held without charge indefinitely. Uh, like it happens in some, some places, including some American allies. <laughs> uh, so, Absolutely. yeah, I think that can be way overstated, but there's certainly plenty of things that Trump has said and uh, and is doing that uh, are concern me. Right on. Question three. What do you think of the non-aggression principle? I'm all for it. <laughs> uh, look, uh, you don't other, own other people. I think Roderick Long or somebody says, you know, anarchism is the radical idea that other people aren't your property. Well, that's just another way of saying that on aggression principle or the principle of self-ownership. You know, you you own yourself. No one else owns you and you can't own anybody else. All, all that amounts to non-aggression. It simply means you can't you can't uh, initiate force uh, against other people. You can use force in self-defense uh, and, you know, the, using, uh, you know, no more than, than necessary to uh, – repel a threat or, you know, something like that, protect right. yourself or protect other innocent life. But you can't aggress. That's right. You can't, you can't hit people. Don't, you know, it's what your parents used to teach you. Don't hit, don't take other people's stuff and keep your promises. I mean, it's just, it's just that simple, really. I'm with you. Question four. What is your opinion on Trump's foreign policy? Is it better than some? <laughs> well, I guess it's better than some. Because I can think of people who criticize Trump's foreign policy for being too 
what dovish i mean i'm thinking of russia here uh you know he wants he said he wanted to have a friendly relationship with russia well i'm all in favor of that the problem is he hasn't really done it he's done he's done lots of anti-russian things i mean he's he's doing what obama didn't do he's sending uh, uh armed uh, arms to ukraine right and uh he's expanded he's he's helped expand nato by bringing in what did he bring in montenegro yeah he added at least one member new member state so he's now following in the footsteps of uh, uh, you know Clinton, uh, Bush uh, number two, and Obama. So it's I don't think it's a good foreign policy. Look what he's doing. He's aiding the Saudis who are committing genocide in Yemen, killing lots of kids from uh, what is it, cholera and, and starvation. Uh, he's been terrible on on the, on the Palestine question. He's totally sided with Israel. No surprise there. And all and American presidents before him did the same thing. But he's been particularly egregious. I mean, I could go on, but these are supposed to be short answers. It's a terrible foreign policy. Right on. Don't the tough question? Would it be worse than Hillary Clinton? You know, I don't know. Maybe it would. Maybe maybe not. I mean, it's it's terrible. That's all I know. Right on. Question five: Is America a neo-mercantilist corporate state? And is there such thing as economic freedom? Well, there can be such a thing as economic freedom in the society and, you know, that we're in now. That's what I mean. Still, you know, for, there's still freedom has not been wiped out in the United States. I think that could be overstated. There's still a lot we can do. If we're talking about economics, I'll limit it to that. Is it mercantilist with with Trump? Trump is like a mercantilist. Uh, he wants to protect particular industries like steel and aluminum and and some other things. And he generally has this. Uh, a screwed up view of trade. The trade is a zero sum, right? One person's gain is another person's loss. Mm-hmm. But as I explained before, uh, when people are trading freely, both sides gain or else mm-hmm. they wouldn't trade. Mm-hmm. So, but Trump doesn't get that. Trump thinks uh, that when there's international trade, somebody wins and somebody loses. He also makes the mistake, a mercantilist mistake of thinking that countries trade, but countries don't trade. I might buy something from uh, a Japanese, uh, Japanese or Chinese or Mexican manufacturer. That's not America trading with those countries. That's me trading with particular people from those countries. Exactly. And so it's stupid. It's, it's stupid an individual, to be, uh, not a country. Right. And it's stupid to be p- compiling statistics to see how America is doing versus Mexico or China or Japan or Canada, uh, because those statistics don't tell you anything. Right. I have a trade deficit with my grocer. Because I buy something from him every week, and he never buys anything from me. Right, exactly. Am I I bothered by that? Of course not. Exactly. Good way of looking at it. Question six. This is the controversial one. Is there white privilege, or is what the left trying to say black disadvantage? Oh, I don't know if that's hair splitting. Look, there is this. We we have this legacy from the very sad history of the United States regarding people who originated in Africa mm-hmm. uh, because of slavery and then Jim Crow and uh, f- uh, official segregation. Uh, and, and so uh, there, there, there's certainly lasting effects from that, which uh, aren't easily undone. And there's, there's still, you know, there's still a racism. There's still mm-hmm. a, a racism among many people. Maybe uh, I'm sure it's less than before. And I think you just see that when you're walking down the street, you see, there seems to be more racial harmony than uh, you know in previous times. There's definitely been an yeah. improvement, but there's there's still the you know the effects of of this long history that hasn't gone away. And I think we do see it in some police forces and uh, courts and uh, and among officials. So uh, mm-hmm. point is, let's keep the state out of it, and uh, we can work out the problems uh, on our own. Right on, man. Question seven. 
Why does the state destroy value like homes, cash for clunkers, etc.? And what is their intent? Is it ignorance or malevolence? Oh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say it's malevolence. I, don't, I mean, I don't think they're thinking up cash for clunk, clunkers and things like that saying, how can we really screw, you know, American society or Americans? Uh, I think a lot of it is ignorance. A lot of it is wanting to look like they're doing something, right? Because they always have this, if there seems to be a problem, it's always like, we got to get things done. We got to do something. You know, there's that old quip about how uh, uh, they say we have to do something, you know, doing uh, X, Y, and Z or something. Therefore, you know, we should do that. That's sort of the logic people use. They look, they look, most people know nothing about economics. So if there's a recession or just something uh, that seems to be a problem, the first thing they do is look to the government and say, you know, fix this because they don't, that's exactly. what they've been taught. Yep. And they, you know, they hear the story of the Great Depression and all that and think, well, the government came to the rescue then. So maybe you can come to rescue now. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's malevolence. Uh, and uh, they just come up with these gimmicks. Because they also want to win votes. A lot of it's just to win votes. Look like I'm doing something. Look like I'm active and really care. I care about you, so I'll propose cash for clunkers without knowing what the secondary and, uh, and effects and beyond are. Right on. Ignorance. I'm with you. Question eight. What are your thoughts on universal basic income? Uh, I wrote about it. I have an article at the Libertarian Institute about it. Uh, I don't see any grounds for it. I mean, I, I'm against state intervention. If the state intervenes in things like this, the, it, it's got to use uh, force. It's got to initiate the use of force. It will also have, you know, negative secondary consequences. And also it's a, it's, it's a, it's a distraction because it's addressing a problem that, that, without going to the root of the problem. If, if people are struggling, and of course, people, you know, there are people who are struggling, then we need to clear away the barriers the government has, uh, uh, you know, built up over the years, and it could be, have been for perfectly good reasons. It didn't have to be have good motives. It didn't have to be uh, uh, malevolence that impede people's mobility, social and economic mobility, it's their chance to get ahead. Uh, the minimum wage. I mean, these are old stories that libertarians and free market people have told forever. The minimum wage can throw people out of jobs or make uh, or, or lock, you know, make jobs less attractive and um, you know, more uncomfortable. Licensing keeps people from uh, getting into various occupations of all kinds. Exactly. I, mean, like, yep. I don't mean just like doctors and lawyers. I'm talking about like, uh, you know, being a florist in Louisiana or something like that. <laughs> uh, and it makes it hard. And licensing <laughs> and, and zoning make it hard for people to start their own businesses, small scale businesses. So they're stuck. They're stuck in wage jobs when maybe they don't like that, that, uh, you know, rigidity or having a boss uh, over their shoulder shouting in their ear and might might want to quit. Like there was an old song that was very popular called, you know, take this job and shove it. Yep. And I'm going to go I'm going to go start a business, except, oh, my gosh, now I have to either go to some school to get a license or I need to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars to get, you know, various kinds of permits and, oh, I can't do it for my home because the zoning rules say I can't do it. We All these barriers have been built up to people bettering themselves and making more money. And then some, you know, body comes along like Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders and says, well, I got a great idea. The government should just give everybody, you know, whatever it is, $30,000 a year. Uh, so they they don't inter they're not interested at all. They claim to be radicals. They're not interested at all looking at the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. They just want to lay lay another layer of bureaucracy on top of things, and that's not going to help. Exactly. Question nine. In reference to your book, Tethered Citizens, does the state remain strong by tethering its people by creating a false dependency? It may strengthen the government, but I don't think it strengthens the society. 
because they're, they're at the mercy of politicians. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really a book about the welfare state and how it was really designed to, to you know, keep lower income people quiet, right? Keep exactly. them from getting revolutionary yep. thoughts. Uh, it was to buy their silence. It was hush money. Uh, that's what well, the welfare state did. And it creates a lot of uh, perverse incentives that mm-hmm. keep, that, uh, keep people uh, dependent. And then all, well, along with all these other things I mentioned, licensing and all that, uh, exactly. et cetera, uh, it, it just, uh, it, it's, a, it's, dead, it's a dead end. It's, a dep- it's dependency and it's certainly bad. Right on, question 10. And this is the final question. How does war expand the powers of the state? Uh, well, very easily, and it's a very old story. When when government claims a national security uh, threat, uh, the the public is more uh, open. They get scared. The point is to scare them, and then they're more open to uh, things. The uh, you know additional power the government uh, will claim for itself than they would be if they hadn't been scared. I mean, it happened after nine eleven. What was one of the first things? The Patriot Act gets passed. Uh, which all has all kinds of intrusive things, uh, which and led then to mass surveillance and uh, of all of uh, you know the whole society, phone, you know, uh, downloading data from phone calls and, and web searches and stuff like that. That was stuff that the government wanted to do for years, but right. they couldn't get away with it until nine eleven. Then they could scare everybody, saying, "Well, we need this stuff. Look what happened. We don't want another one of these things happening again." So war is the health of the state. That's the famous saying by Randolph Bourne. It was an opponent of U.S. entry into World War I. Uh, and the government will gain power uh, through crises, war and similar things. Uh, Robert Higgs's book, uh, Crisis and Leviathan, documents this. And he shows how in these crises, um, the government expands. And then afterwards, it may shed some of the powers that came in under the emergency, or the at least the alleged emergency, Right, but never all of them. So the government still ends up bigger afterwards, even when the crisis seems over. The government ends up more powerful than it was before. He calls it a ratchet effect. Right, it, it ratchets it up, but it, it doesn't ever come fully back to the pre-crisis uh, period. So if you get a series of crises, crises, wars, and other things, and or or war threats, doesn't even have to actually end up being an actual war. Uh, the government is growing over that period of time. It's, you know, if you look at a graph, it's like a, it's like a, a straight uh, going from the, the lower left to the upper right. And that's and that's what happens. Uh, government is much more powerful than it was before, say, World War uh, before I mean, before the Civil War and even before the War of 1812. It gained powers in the War of 1812. Governments always gain powers in, in, in war and uh, is not eager to give them up. Right on. And that's rocket fire. Give it up for Sheldon Richmond. Awesome. That is good, good stuff. I'm telling you what. Yep. That was amazing. Good job on that. You kept it pretty short, actually. Yeah, I thought I was running on a few of them. Oh, no, it was it good. You're fine. All right, Sheldon, do you, have, do you have time for one more question? Sure. All right, Raylene, go ahead. Okay, this is a good one for me. In your book, Separating School and State, you talked about the failures of compulsory education and your vision of a privatized system. That was in 1994. Can you talk to me about what you're seeing today, 24 years later, uh, both in regard to how much worse it may be or um, and, and things like uh, technology and innovation changing the viable 
options, maybe like unschooling and things like that. So where are you at today if you wrote that book? Well, you're right. That last point you made is exactly on point. We've seen an amazing advance in uh, the ability of, of for independent education and including homeschooling uh, or home unschooling is uh, yeah is one of the sort of uh, uh, approaches uh, uses that uh, term uh, because of the internet and and various services like you know Khan Academy and a few others and uh, I'm sure there are ones I don't even know about uh, that present uh, classes lectures I mean, heck I watch YouTube and watch college you know college professors uh, some well known some not well known giving lectures on uh, you know, philosophy and stuff like this, it has been a huge boost to independent education, home-based ba- home uh, education. I'm sure it's being used in some schools too. Uh, yeah. There is more talk and interest in choice in education uh, among people. Um, I'm still, I remain skeptical. I don't, uh, I don't see great hope in uh, charter schools or, uh, or vouchers or things like that because you still have government, uh, the, the government is still kind of running the show. Yes. They're still the, they're still yes. the overseer. Yep. They can yank a charter if they say the charter is not being lived up to. It's right. not, it's not free market education, but the, it's still, it is talked about this idea that there ought to be competition and parental choice. So if that's being talked about, that's a good thing. The teachers union, of course, still is a holdout and is, doesn't want to have any kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, choice for parents whatsoever or children whatsoever. Uh, but I think that, you know, that's now, uh, I think, a view that's uh, not held by nearly as many people. And so there's there's definitely been progress in that area. Right on. Great. Anyway, so, Raylene, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Sheldon Richmond. Give us your dot com, sir. Uh, my blog is a free association. It's just sheldonrichmond.com. And... Uh, my writing uh, appears at the uh, Libertarian Institute, which is just libertarianinstitute.org. Right on. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sheldon. This has been an exciting conversation with you, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and give us your wisdom and your knowledge of economics, man. Seriously. So let's give it up for Sheldon Richman. My pleasure. Awesome stuff. Amazing. Amazing stuff, man. Seriously, thank you so much, and please, you can come back on the show anytime, sir. We still have like fifty questions more for you, and we just All right. <laughs> we didn't get back, we didn't get around to them. So, but we really appreciate your time, man, and thank you so much for being here on the show. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas, and I'm here with my ray of truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Thank you, guys. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket, and again, if you like this show. Please go to our Patreon and you can find us at supportblastoff.com or check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com and or blastoffshow.com to hear all of our past episodes. And please support us. You can go back and listen to all of our previous episodes and I'm sure you'll dig them. Raylene, what do you think? You think they'll dig it? Everyone I know is loving our old episodes that they haven't heard yet. So they, everyone's loving it. I actually just got a compliment. They said every one of our shows has been good, which was wow. Thank you. W-O-W exclamation point. Hashtag. Oh, wow. Me too. Hashtags dreams come true. That's right. Hashtag all dis liberty. Hashtag on fire. That's right. We're doing pretty good. I'm, yeah. d- I'm digging I it. Just, it's our guests. We we are very lucky to get to talk to these pillars in the community. And I am really, you know how I am. I'm a fangirl of, of people in the movement and warriors for liberty. Are you really? So I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah. You do, you do kind of, you do like warriors for liberty. 
Warriors. Johnny teases me all the time because I want to get inside, crawl around inside of people's brains and, and get to know them. and Make a little nest, about. take a pillow, blanket, get comfortable, like talk, talk, dude, talk. I, yeah, please just talk. Like, yeah. tell me more about this. Tell me I, more. I, I really do. No, I love it. Yep. No, I, I like your enthusiasm. That's the cool thing about you, Ray Ray. Thanks. I love your enthusiasm. I wish I had, I shared that sometimes. A lot of this is false enthusiasm. Can you tell? No. I'm like not, I'm not very excited to be here. Well, you're just a cool dude. I just, I just don't that's like, what I it just, is. I just don't like. You're me. excited to be here. You're a liar. This is what you're like. I'm lying. I'm lying. This is lying. you. What's up? Yeah. You're like, okay, so we have, you know, so-and-so on the show tonight. And I, um, I did some questions. And uh, I want you to want to listen to them. And I go, yeah. And then you'll, you'll tell me some of the questions you're going to ask. And then, and then I'll tell you the question. And I'm like, oh, that one's a good one. You're like, oh, you like that one? Like you're getting all like amped up in the daytime. We usually call each other like three times before I come over to your house and we film and then we record. Yes. Yeah, I know. We talk to each other a lot on, on show day because we're getting all excited. I, I get excited. Actually, I'm lying. Uh-huh. I, I get totally up. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, this could be cool. And then I know, and I just pour gasoline on that fire. I know I do. I'm like, yeah, you yeah. do. And then you're like, <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, and I get about it sometimes. You're like, I am so excited. Yeah, I am so excited. I'm like, really, really. You're yeah. like, shut up, nerd. I'm not really <laughs> that excited. You know, I don't know. I could be wrong though. I mean, I actually think you do get excited. I know liberty is your passion, and it is mine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to be doing the show. And again. You know what? I, I I actually am strongly suggesting that people who are listening to the show go to support Patreon or supportblastoff.com and hear all the and donate a buck or two per episode. And they can go back and hear everything that we've talked about and all of our after parties, all of our all nighters. I'm telling you what, we've had some of the best conversations on the after parties and the all nighters, even better than the show, I think. Yeah, some are with the guests and they stay a long time because it's just the conversation is just going so great. They end up staying a little bit longer and then we put them on the second show for Patreon. And then also, you and I can just really get philosophical and talk about what we're doing and why this matters. And gosh, it's the good stuff. It is good stuff. You know, stuff. I'm just a sucker for passion. That's you right. Know. That's how it is. That's how it is. Yeah. And anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket at Blastoff, always launching ideas in your direction, and we'll see you next week. Rock and roll. <laughs>